and Happy New Year. Welcome back after a little break from our uh, Sunday school class. Just by way of reminder, just wanted to refresh us where we were at. We're going through the canons of Dort. And as you know, uh, normally sometimes we think of the five points of Calvinism as tulip, but the order of the canons of Dort is actually ultip, which isn't as beautiful of a flower, but nonetheless the order uh, in which that they go. And so we were on the third and fourth heads go together uh, in the canons of Dort, which is total depravity and irresistible grace. And we're coming up on the last couple articles. Does anybody remember why total depravity and irresistible grace are kind of put together in the canons of Dort? What would be the reason for combining them? Yes. Right. Yeah, the, the goodness of the good news looks the best and brightest against the bad news of the bad. <laughs> so the total depravity is really leveling the playing field. It's not just that we're sick in our trespasses and sins, but scripture says we're what in our trespasses and sins? Dead. And then in order to have life, we need something outside of ourselves, not something from within us or something that we cooperate with. So the goodness of the good news of God's gospel, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, shines brightest against the bad news of our sinness and deadness in Adam. So that's the reason that they put those together. So in the third and fourth heads, they were focusing on total depravity and then getting into irresistible grace. And in particular, irresistible grace is focusing on regeneration. And what is, in summary, just what's regeneration? Does anybody remember? What is regeneration? What does it mean to regenerate? Yeah, to give new, new life, right? It's to regenerate it, to give life to. And so it's really focusing on if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you need to be regenerated. You need to be given new life. And that's what it's focusing upon. And the Canons of Dort doesn't specifically go through the, what's sometimes known as the Ordo Salutis or the Order of Salvation. But I thought that it might be helpful for us to think about this as we look particularly at regeneration this morning. And so the Ordo Salutis is just a fancy way of saying the order of salvation of how God's benefits come to us. All of these are from the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. But there's an order uh, to them that is important. We're called and then through that calling, we're regenerated. It's the regenerate person that believes and is given the gift of faith. That person is justified and adopted. That person will also be sanctified. They will persevere in the faith and ultimately be uh, glorified. Yes? Um, predestination is a way of describing like the whole process. You're predestined for all of this <laughs> um, in Christ. So you, you recognize that before the foundation of the world, you were chosen in Christ. At a specific point in time, you were effectually called. You were dead in Adam and you were raised to new life in Christ. That means you're regenerate. 
And it's the regenerate person that believes. And it's the relationship between these two that I want to focus on today or that the canons of Dort are focusing on. Because some people will flip these and say that it's the person that believes that is regenerate. And we want to say, quite clearly from Scripture, it's the regenerate person that believes. You can easily flip these. And so the canons of Dort in particular is writing against Pelagianism and against Arminianism, both which would flip these. Say, if you have faith, then you'll be regenerate. We'll say you can't have faith unless you're regenerate. And you're actually given, the first thing we're going to look at is that faith is a gift. It's something that God gives us. A divine gift. Turn, if you will, in the back of your hymnals, to page 909, and we'll look at the canons of Dort. Jake, did you have a question, brother? Of what? Of degenerate? A degenerate person. A degenerate person is someone who doesn't follow the ways of the Lord. But I'm trying to think what the exact opposite of regenerate would be. Dead um, <laughs> uh, might be the opposite. Degenerate would be an, ant- an antonym. So we want to look at Article 14. We're specifically talking about, hey, how do we come to know the Lord? If we're totally depraved, we're lost, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, how do we come to know the Lord? And in Article 14 on page 909, Article 14 says this. It says, In this way, therefore, faith is a gift of God, not in the sense that it is offered by God for man to choose, but that it is in actual fact bestowed on man, breathed and infused into him, nor is it a gift in the sense that God bestows only the potential to believe, but then awaits assent, the act of believing from man's choice. Rather, it is a gift in the sense that he who works both willing and acting and indeed works all things in all people produces in man both the will to believe and the belief itself. That's a remarkable statement that it's making, and that many times we, be, many, we hear that Jesus made salvation possible. And we want to say much more than that, and that scripture says Jesus makes salvation certain, and that for all of the people for whom Christ died, they will be saved. They will be called, they will be regenerated, they will believe, they will be justified, they will be adopted, they will be sanctified, they will be preserved, and they will be in glory. So in our church, right, we say we believe that we receive Christ plus all of his benefits, all of these things. It's not that some of us will get five of them or six of them or seven of them or could lose three of them, all of them. Christ plus all of his benefits to all of his people. And that Jesus doesn't come just to make that a possibility or a hope and then hold it out saying, boy, I hope that you're wise enough to choose it. Right? Like we heard in the sermon today. I had two of you come up to me afterwards and say, isn't it wonderful to go to a church where we hear such faithful preaching? Uh, Reverend Godfrey's just such a faithful and wonderful preacher. And just listening to that sermon, realizing who of us would have chosen that path on our own? None of us. We weren't even starting out on the good path. We were on the path leading to destruction, and he came and took us. (laughs) 
and brought us to the path which is found in Christ, in him, and to recognize the beauty and the wonder of God's amazing grace from beginning to end. And it's really humbling to us because we recognize that there's nothing that we have to boast about in all of this, right? It's God who did it from beginning to end. I remember Reverend Brown, when I was here as an intern one time, was asked to preach at a church somewhere. And before he was going to preach, they said, would you please get up and, you know, give your testimony? And he said, you know, I don't really want to give my testimony. I just want to get up and share the gospel. And then like 10 minutes before he was going to preach again, like they said, well, please just give your testimony first. He said, no, I just want to get up and preach the gospel. And when they got up and introduced him, they said, Mike Brown's here from Christ URC. He's going to give his testimony and then he's going to preach. And so Mike walks up, he goes, my testimony is that I'm dead in my sin um, and that I contributed nothing to my salvation. And my gospel message is that I'm free in Christ. And so his testimony was, I have nothing to bring, right? I have nothing to contribute to this. I just recognize I'm dead in my trespasses and sin and I flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Where would we find something about the gift nature of faith in Scripture? So I don't want to say, you reform people in your confessions and creeds. I just want the Bible. Where in the Bible would we get it? Ephesians 2, right? Ephesians 2. Turn there if you would. Ephesians 2 is one of the best places to go to talk about the reality of salvation the lostness of our sin and misery and the goodness of God in Christ. And so in Ephesians 2, the first three verses really get at total depravity and the next six verses really get at irresistible grace. So listen to the word of God. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Aren't you glad scripture doesn't end there? (laughs) It starts off, right, you were dead, in your trespasses, by nature you were a child of wrath. That's bad news, the worst possible news. But listen to the next words. But you, because of your wonderful wisdom and charming personality, right? But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when, beloved, even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive. What do we say regeneration was? He made us alive when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So what it's saying here is this. The faith itself is a gift. It is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. 
Oh, glory be to God for our salvation. He gives us everything that we need for faith and for life. He calls us. He regenerates us. He gives us the ability, the desire to believe. He justifies us. He adopts us. It's just highlighting this reality of this salvation. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's really the good news of the gospel. And this is really highlighting what we're trying to say in the canons of Dort, of your deadness and your lostness and your condemnation, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive. And by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is a gift. Does that make sense? Does anybody have any questions about that? What would happen if you flipped it? What's that? Yeah, it makes it up to, it's as if it's a neutral choice, which is what the Canons of Dort is writing against. In their rejection of errors, they mention the Pelagians. And so the Pelagians basically put you back in the garden and say, Satan cast a ballot for your soul, and God cast a ballot for your soul, and Christ's grace is sufficient, so now you choose. That sounds great, and it's an easier sell (laughs) in our society, right? But is it true? Is it what Scripture says? Scripture says it's not just that we're back in the garden, and we have the opportunity to go this way or go this way. Scripture says we're going this way. We're dead in our trespasses. We're by nature children of path. We're sons of disobedience. But God takes us from that path and puts us on this path. Not that we might choose it, but that we're already in it. (laughs) You're already regenerate. You already have faith. You already are justified. You're already adopted. You can't lose or forfeit any of those things because they are a gift of God from the Father, in the Son, through the Holy Spirit, now and always. And that's meant to be the impetus for our life. It's not like if we do these things, then we'll have life. It's you do these things because you have life. Because you have life in the Spirit. Some of you have heard me before talk about the Pinocchio example, right? In that the Disney version of Pinocchio, he's a, Pinocchio is just a wooden block, right? And Geppetto uh, made him, and the blue fairy comes and sprinkles some dust on him, and he kind of has life. And she tells Pinocchio, if you're brave, if you're wise, if you're true, then you'll be a real boy. And then Pinocchio gets in with the wrong crowd and goes all these different ways and eventually makes some choices at the end and is granted a real boy status because of his bravery, his truth, and his honesty. That's what the Canons of Dort is writing against. <laughs> We're saying you're dead in your trespasses and sins, and it's not the blue fairy, but the Holy Spirit of God who comes to you and says, you are a real boy. You are a real girl. I've made you alive in Christ. I've given you a new heart that believes, a mind that believes, ears that hear, eyes that see, and now do these things. Not so that you'll have salvation, but because you have salvation. Not in order to, but because of your new life in Christ. You hear the difference? 
They're two different religions, and that's what the Canons of Dort is trying to get at. Turn, if you will, just over one page to look at the rejection of errors that are in the Canons of Dort are meant to help us gain some clarity. And so on the rejection of error number nine, on page 912, Look at page 910 just for a minute. Keep your finger on 912. But see where it says the rejection of errors in the, um, in the heading? And then it says, having set forth the orthodox teaching, the synod rejects the errors of those. That should be read before every rejection of error. So I'm going to read it. So having set forth the orthodox teaching, which we just discussed, the synod rejects the errors of those, now turn to Article 9, who teach that the grace and free choice are concurrent partial causes which cooperate to initiate conversion and that grace does not precede in the order of causality the effective influence of the will, that is to say, that God does not effectively help man's will to come to conversion before man's will itself motivates and determines itself. So what it's saying, we reject the errors of those who say that faith precedes regeneration, or that God just gives enough grace so that if you, if you cooperate with him, then he'll save you. We're saying something far more grand. Because of God's grace, you will believe. You will come. He effectually calls you. And so the canons goes on, for the early church already condemned this doctrine long ago in the Pelagians, on the basis of the words of the apostle, it does not depend on man's will or running, but on God's mercy, which is what Ephesians 2 said. You're dead in your trespasses, but God being rich in what, beloved? Mercy. Also, who makes you different from anyone else, and what do you have that you did not receive? Likewise, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. That's wonderful. That's a wonderful doctrine of God's grace, not just being offered, but effectual. God's grace affects or brings about um, what he desires. And so what the canons is writing against is when it says, we reject the errors of those who teach that grace and free choice are concurrent partial causes which cooperate to initiate conversion. That's sometimes called synergism, which is a big word. Uh, it's talking about things working together. You and God working together for your salvation. That's called synergism. And we believe in monergism. Mono meaning one. One works. God works. <laughs> and you are saved. One of the best images of that, right, is Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. It wasn't a negotiation, it wasn't an offer, it wasn't a cooperation on Lazarus's part. It's the word of God which created the universe calling forth someone who's dead to life. And he comes and he lives. It's effectual. It wasn't Lazarus cooperating, right? I can't imagine at the dinner party afterwards everyone going, good job, Lazarus. You were so amazing. Hopefully everyone's focused on Christ and said, that's amazing. He was dead, 
and now he lives. Who can do such a thing? Oh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one who lives in us through the Holy Spirit, the one who never fails, the one who will gather all of his sheep and not one will be lost, that one. That's what the canons of Dort are trying to get at here. The next article, any questions about that one? The next article we want to look at is Article 15, having to do with the responses to God's grace. And so let's read that together, back on page 909. Article 15 says, God does not owe this grace to anyone, for what what could God owe to one who has nothing to give that can be paid back? Indeed, what could God owe to one who has nothing of his own to give but sin and falsehood? Therefore, the person who receives this grace owes and gives eternal thanks to God alone. The person who does not receive it either does not care at all about these spiritual things and is satisfied with himself in his condition, or else in self-assurance foolishly boasts about having something which he lacks. Furthermore, following the example of the apostles, we are to think and to speak in the most favorable way about those who outwardly profess their faith and better their lives, for their inner chambers of their heart are unknown to us. But for others who have not yet been called, we are to pray to the God who calls things that do not exist as though they did. In no way, however, are we to pride ourselves as better than they, as though we had distinguished ourselves from them. I really love this article because it really reminds us of the responses to God's grace, because the tendency on either extreme could be to turn God's grace into something that we thought we deserved and merited, and so to be proud and boast in ourselves, or to really have a horrible attitude about, oh, you people who didn't do this, how dare you? You were just like him. (laughs) You were dead in your trespasses and sins. It was God who did this. And so it's really highlighting what are the responses to this? Like what should, what is the response of one who has been touched by such grace? And what does it say our response to the Lord is in the article? Gratitude, yeah, exactly. And you know, our whole Heidelberg Catechism is broken apart in three Gs, right? Guilt, dead in your stress and sins, grace, God's irresistible grace, and then gratitude. We live our whole life thankful to the Lord for what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Are any of God's promises to us going to fail? Not one. Not one. And so we live our whole lives as thankful. When we came in this morning, even in the structure of our liturgy, to be reminded of the law, One of the purposes of the law was to remind us, even with the Holy Spirit, we're still, we still sin. Pastor never gives us enough time, does he? (laughs) Of all the things that we could say in silent confession. But what's the next word that we hear? You're forgiven. You're declared righteous. I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's not meant to drive us deeper into ourselves. It's meant to say, hey, take a look at what's really going on. Recognize your sin and drive you out to your Savior Jesus. The eyes of faith. 
an extrospective trust, looking outside of ourselves, not to ourselves, but to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who fully satisfied for how many of our sins, beloved? All of them. And his righteousness is imputed to us, right? And how many of his children are going to be lost? That's great. Thank you. What else can we do but say thank you? And what should our attitude be according to the canons of Dortor, brothers and sisters who confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, even if they don't do it exactly like we do? Yeah. What's that? Yeah, favorable, gracious. How many of you came out of the chute the first time you came to faith wholeheartedly embracing the three forms of unity? (laughs) Nobody. You had to learn these things. And you're still learning them. And I'm still learning them. It's a lifetime of sanctification. It's a lifetime of discipleship. But he gave you enough to believe, to look to Christ And so there's different maturity levels and different understanding of these things, and we need to be gracious. Paul even says in Philippians, right, that he rejoices that the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, even if it's out of false motives. Paul doesn't rejoice if the true gospel isn't preached. So if he hears a a Pelagian gospel or an Arminian gospel, he's not going to rejoice. But if he hears the true gospel that's preached, even if it's out of bad motives, he rejoices because that's the very power of God unto salvation. It's the very thing that he uses not only to regenerate people, but it's that same gospel which justifies, which adopts, which sanctifies, which preserves people. We never move on from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We never move on from the person of Jesus Christ as our our savior. So we want to be really, really charitable towards those who believe and confess grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. Sometimes it gets easy to, yeah, we disagree on some things, and they're really important, and they're worth discussing. But if someone's calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and they believe we're saved by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, then we should be charitable towards them. That's what our communion policy is. If you do these things, then come to the Lord's table. There's still a maturation process and an understanding that needs to go on in all of us, but we recognize that at the foundation that our life is in Christ and that we are his and not just us alone. Jesus Christ didn't just come for Chuck Tedrick. Jesus Christ came for his church, for his people, for his flock, for a group, and that we're part of that. Does that make sense? And then what does uh, the canon say our attitude should be towards the unregenerate? Pray for them. them. It doesn't say shun them and make fun of them and mock them on Twitter mercilessly. Would they, if Twitter was around at the time, Jake, have changed that and said, don't pray for them, mock them, the stupid people. Would it have done that? Why? Where did they get this idea to pray for the unregenerate? Yeah. It's amazing. How many of you, right, every Sunday night for 10 years at Calvary, 
I would meet with a group of saints, and every night here, every Sunday night we meet here, almost every person who comes, particularly the older we get, all that they really care about is that their friends and family know and walk with the Lord. The other stuff's important. We all have challenges going on in life. But to a person, I have family members who don't know the Lord. I have dear friends who don't know the Lord. You have children, grandchildren, friends, parents, siblings, neighbors who don't know the Lord. And we don't give up on them because they're unregenerate. Well, they're too far gone. Well, guess what? You were too far gone. You were dead. That didn't look very good. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. But it's this Jesus that we serve. It's this Jesus that can stand at the grave of Lazarus and say, come forth. So we pray. As long as they have breath, there is hope. As long as they have breath, we will continue to pray. I don't know if Bob and Gloria Hannibal are here today. Okay. Bob Hannibal was one of the people that I prayed with for years. I don't think you'd mind me sharing this story. He and I prayed for years that Gloria would come to know the Lord. And then, like five years in, time ministry in Calvary, he called me. He's like, Gloria knows the Lord. That's amazing. That's just amazing. What else could we do but rejoice? The angels in heaven rejoice every time the sinner repents. What an honor to be involved in that. It wasn't me and my prayers, but to have sat with that brother Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, where he's praying for his wife, and then she comes to know the Lord, and then to hear about it, what else can you do but say thank you? He took her from here and here, and now, boy, she's a prayer warrior now, isn't she? I just love to listen to her pray. It's amazing what the Lord can and does too. Amen? The next article we want to look at, are there any questions about that one? The next one is regeneration's effect. Regeneration's effect on page 909. Before I move on, turn to Ephesians 3. When we talk about this prayer, here's a really good one to remember if you're wondering, hey, how do I pray about this or what do I do? There's a end, uh, the Apostle Paul prays at the end of Ephesians 3. And I just think it's one of the most beautiful prayers in Scripture. There are many beautiful prayers in Scripture. But this is my prayer as a pastor at this church and a pastor at Loveland. And certainly Paul was writing this about the Ephesians by way, it's also for all the churches and it's for our church by extension as well. Paul says in Ephesians three fourteen, he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a great prayer for us to remember for our unregenerate friends. But then listen to how he closes it. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and to Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's just staggering. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or even think. I can think a lot. It's probably been blasphemous at times. Some of the thought, God, why don't you do this? And why don't you do this? And why don't you do this? It's amazing, all the things that I can, I don't think I'm that great of a thinker. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, God can do far more abundantly than all I ask or think. That's the God to whom we're praying. The God who created the universe like that. The God of the Exodus. The God of the walls of Jericho. The God of the resurrection of Lazarus. The God of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The God of every story in scripture. That God can do far more abundantly than all you ask or think according to his riches and glory in Christ and in his church. And we pray to him and we trust him and we're going to him in gratitude, knowing that he is merciful and faithful and willing. So if you're ever wondering, Ephesians 3 is a really good place to remember to focus upon that prayer. But let's turn now to Article 16, Regeneration's Effect. Page 909, it says, However, just as by the fall man did not cease to be man, endowed with intellect and will, and just as sin, which has spread through the whole human race, did not abolish the nature of the human race, but distorted and spiritually killed it, so also this divine grace of regeneration does not act in people as as if they were blocks and stones, nor does it abolish the will and its properties or coerce a reluctant will by force. Listen to the language it uses. But spiritually revives, heals, and reforms in a manner at once pleasing and powerful, bends it back. As a result, a ready and sincere obedience of the spirit now begins to prevail, where before the rebellion and resistance of the flesh was completely dominant. It is in this that the true and spiritual restoration and freedom of our will consists. Thus, if the marvelous maker of every good thing were not dealing with us, man would have no hope of getting up from his fall by his free choice, by which he plunged himself into ruin when still standing upright. And so this is really starting to get at the heart of what sometimes, most often, right, people criticize, criticize this view of salvation of, is that it makes God coercive, or that it makes us stocks and blocks upon which God acts, or says that we have no will at all. But if you remember at the very beginning, we said that we, in Adam, Adam had a mind, he had a will, and he had affections. And those were created towards the Lord. And in the fall, he didn't lose the ability to think, he didn't lose the ability to feel, and he didn't lose the ability to act. But now all of those things were directed away from the Lord. He still possessed the natural ability to do all of those things, 
but he didn't have a spiritual ability or desire to do them towards the Lord. He did them towards Satan. And so what the text is saying is that it's not that we didn't have a will before, but our will was going this way. We were by nature children of wrath, sons of disobedience. And so it's God changing, affecting a change through his Holy Spirit that that will is now bent towards the Lord. The mind is thinking upon the Lord. The eyes are focused upon the Lord. The hands and feet are willing and ready to do the work of the Lord now in a way that they couldn't or didn't before. It's not that, oh, now you have a will. Now you can think. Now you can feel. You did. But you had no moral ability to do them towards the Lord. You just had natural ability because you were a human being. But now you're a new creature in Christ. And that's what we're trying to get at here. Because so often it gets treated as if God coerces people into the kingdom. Or he acted in doing violence to their will. And so what it's saying here is, but spiritually revives. I would say you could actually capitalize that S. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, he revives, he heals, he bends the will which we had, which was rebellious, now towards the Lord. And so, do we believe? Yes. Why? Because God acted first. He bent, he changed that will that was against him towards him. He didn't just give us a brand new will that didn't exist before. That's one of the biggest knocks that people have is thinking that, well, it's coercive. And you could say, right, in Lazarus's case, right, Lazarus didn't cooperate and say, yeah, 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 I really want to do this. But it's a really good thing that God did it. He changed him from one state of being dead to another. And that's what God does. And so it's not coercive. He's not taking people against their will into the kingdom. C.S. Lewis said there will be two kinds of people on the last day. Those who say, thy will be done to the Father, and those who say, my will be done, which will be in hell, because they've resisted the Lord. But when you begin to say, I love the Lord, I call upon the Lord, that's because you've been changed, you've been regenerated, you've been reborn. That will that you had has been changed by the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, which is what we confess in the Nicene Creed. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life, and he gives you new life. Using those same materials that were there, the mind that was hardened, the heart that was rebellious, the will that was going its own way, through the power of the Holy Spirit who created the universe, now believes, now walks, now trusts, now does all these things. Did pastor say they do those things perfectly? Nope. Did pastor say they do those things for salvation? Nope. Those are from salvation. Those are the benefits, the fruit, the evidence. That you believe is an evidence that you've been regenerated. It's not the reward for believing. It's evidence of the gift of regeneration. Yes? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So he's still, Gary's talking about the old man, new man is helpful. So when you're dead in your trespasses and sins, there's not an old man, new man struggle. There's just the old man. <laughs> he's just going and doing whatever he wants. When you're part of the new creation, that's so I know to end on time. Um, when you're part of the new creation, you have a struggle that you didn't have as an unregenerate person. This is what Romans 7 is saying. The unregenerate person isn't bothered. They may be bothered that they get caught in some act or do something wrong societally, but they don't care that they've offended a holy God. They don't care that they're spurning the cross of Jesus Christ. They don't care about those things. They may care about the consequences of some legal action or some relationship action. But when you are regenerated and now being sanctified, there's a battle going on that wasn't going on before. Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. The unregenerate person doesn't do that. And beloved, in glory, you won't do that. You'll always do what pleases the Lord and what's good and healthy for you and for everybody else around you, always. But we're in between there. And so you're not the old man, and you're in the process of becoming the new man, but that will change in a twinkling of an eye when you see Christ. And so now there's a dying, a mortifying, a daily taking up your cross, an ongoing reality of battling with that, the old man, which isn't your identity. Your identity is your new man in Jesus Christ which is why some of you heard me talk about like 12-step programs, which can be really helpful. But one of the challenges with 12-step programs is you identify with your sin, not with your Savior. Right? So my name's Chuck, and I'm an alcoholic. Or my name's Chuck, and I'm uh, addicted to narcotics. I'm, my name's Chuck, and I'm whatever. Rather than, my name's Chuck. I'm a new creature in Jesus Christ. I'm justified, I'm adopted, and I struggle with X, Y, or Z. You're identifying with your Savior, not with your sin. You're part, you're part of the new man. You are united to Christ. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I believe in a one-step program. <laughs> Very good. Good. Any questions? Pastor Bill, I think, is teaching Nick. No, next week we have Reverend Lee here uh, during this hour. But then Dr. Uh, Reverend Godfrey will pick up on the last article in this. So let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing nature and grace of salvation. We thank you that you just didn't provide us with an option and that it would be up to us to choose the right way, but that you came and sought us. When we were enemies, when we were the other way, when we were actually dead in our trespasses and sins, you came in your great mercy and made us alive together in Christ. And that by grace, indeed, we have been saved. We rejoice that we are not our own, but that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that we would live a life of gratitude to you for your goodness to us in Christ. I pray that our attitude towards our brothers and sisters in Christ would be one of generosity and humility and charity. 
And I pray for our friends and family who don't know you, Father. We ask that you would be merciful to them, that you would take them from being in Adam to being in Christ, that you would take them from death to life, that you would take them from being in unrighteousness to being righteous in Christ, that you would be merciful to them as you have been with us. And we know that you can do this. We know that you are able to do this. We know that you are able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.